You know what that means. Time to press pause on whatever else you were doing and get a, a strong dose of inspiration from Cello Chat. And this week's guest, I have with me Dave Gowdy. I am super excited to have Dave Gowdy on as my guest this week. How are you doing, Dave? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Benjamin? I'm doing well, too. I'm very glad to hear you doing great. Uh, so, for the sake of audience who either uh, does not yet know you or doesn't know your full story, what's your musical background? How did you come to take up the cello in the first place and how did you get to where you are today? Before I go into that, I just want to thank you for this opportunity because it, it who doesn't like talking about themselves? <laughs> and I, I was as I was getting ready for this, I realized that you and I met each other 30 years ago this period when we both enrolled at UT Austin. <clears throat> so if that doesn't make you feel old, that's, that's <laughs> or this doesn't make you feel old. Um, but I thank you for this opportunity. I, I know that for some of your viewers who are uh, dedicated cellists, they might not get as much out of this particular session as they would with some of the other great cello pedagogues that you have on your site. I would say, look, I'm going, ooh. Um, in fact, if you're a newbie, if you're a kid who's just seeing this site for the first time, you might want to turn this video off and go see one of the more informative ones, then come back to this later. <clears throat> but um, yeah, I've played cello since fourth grade, which would have been 1978, 79, somewhere in there. And the only reason I did it was because in third grade, uh, the orchestra director at our elementary school did a session. They brought out the kids who were in the orchestra. They, the violinist played, the violist played, the cello played. And I just said, oh, I like that one. And um, it, so many things came from that one day. The, the woman who was the, uh, uh, the orchestra director at the time, her name is Joanne Hall, and she's now Joanne Irwin who later went on to become uh, the cello professor at UT Arlington and then became the director of string education at Oberlin for a number of years. And she's recently retired or maybe not so recently retired, but it's, she, she was, she's been such an important part of my life. But from that moment, uh, that was my introduction to the instrument. And then she became my private teacher through uh, junior high and high school. So I've, uh, that was just one of those magical moments. And I, I don't know if I, maybe that's over exaggeration, but you, I think we all have those, those moments in our lives where we suddenly have to make a decision. We just make it and our lives are completely different. You can look at that point and say, wow, look at what, what could have been if I had done something otherwise. Um, I went to the University of Miami in Florida for, with an undergrad in cello performance and then I met you at University of Texas, Austin, where I was pursuing uh, cello pedagogy. And then talk about the, the, the split, the path was that day when I realized that that might not be my best decision at that point, that getting the master's wasn't the right um, 
thing for me at that time. So I had gotten a job through the parent of one of the students in UT String Project. Uh, so I was already working at Lens Crafters at that point, which was completely foreign to anything I had studied for, anything I'd ever done in my life. And that turned into a five-year career where I got management skills and experience that helped make the jump back into the arts. Uh, when in 98, I got hired by the my, my former youth orchestra, the youth orchestra at Fort Worth, to be their general manager. And then since then, over the next 26 years, 25 years, I've been in arts management uh, through Youth Orchestra Fort Worth, Youth Orchestra San Antonio, and then the last 14 years here in Oregon with the Oregon Bach Festival. Uh, I During that time, it's not, the cello hasn't gone away completely, though it's not getting as much love these days as it probably should. But it's uh, in San Antonio, I, I was playing a lot. I was playing with uh, a number of string quartets that was gigging every weekend. I played with a number of the, the um, uh, orchestras, the semi-pro orchestras that were all over the countryside. And uh, I was actually, I even went back to the idea of going back to get my master's. And that's uh, fortunately did not work out because it, the year was 2006. And I can't imagine where I would have been in 2008 if I'd been looking at like $80,000 worth of debt at that point when the when the uh, economy crashed so i'm i was very grateful that i got the job out here in oregon and uh, all the bizarre and incredible things that have happened since then all right and what do you do at the oregon <laughs> i'm my title is director of education programs and the Oregon Bach Festival, for those who aren't familiar with it, was founded in 1970 when this young German conductor who wasn't very well known in the U.S. came over to the University of Oregon, did a conducting master class. And it was such a big hit that they brought him back the next year. And they said, well, you know, while you're here, why don't we do some cantatas also? And so it worked out. And they didn't realize at that point that Helmut Rilling was going to go on to become one of the biggest selling classical conductors in the 80s and 90s for CBS Classical Records. Uh, at that time, his approach to the music of Bach was very different from the way it had been, been performed prior to that. Though the irony is he's not considered a historically informed practitioner because he rejects most of the theories behind it. But he just brought a, a, a lighter approach to the performance of Bach hmm. that makes a lot of his recordings still very worthy to listen to today, even though he does it it's at A equals 440 and on modern instruments. But he, he certainly makes a very strong argument for why modern instruments can do Bach and do Bach well. Um, so over the next 44 years, he kept coming back to Eugene and it turned this small little conductors festival into something much larger, culminating in a performance at the Hollywood Bowl in the mid 80s doing the B minor mass. Uh, and then in the 90s, they won a Grammy for recording of uh, uh, Penderecki's Credo, which had been commissioned by the festival. So it, he's, it's one of those things where a small town pitches together and overachieves and accomplishes something. And the funny part is 
what they did back then isn't that unique now. There's so many festivals and so many Bach festivals across the country. So it's not as it's not as unique as it used to be. But it has so many people who have been touched by it over the years. There's so many uh, director of choral activities at universities who got got their start at the conducting class. And we also have a high school uh, youth choir that uh, has over a thousand alums that over the last 25 years has produced a number of, of uh, young musicians who have gone on into the business. And uh, I'm, I'm in charge of that is my current title. Uh, the, in 2015, we added the Baruch Academy for Historical Performance. And that um, is based on the European Union Baroque Orchestra, which is a program for advanced students and young professionals who are just who have gotten through their training and need something more. And it's also a great way to make connections and meet people from around the country and also work with uh, with with faculty from all over. The initial idea was that we would because we were given this enormous gift to fund it, which was terrific. So we have a great endowment that will ensure that the program will go on for perpetuity. Um, but the idea initially was to provide an American alternative so American uh, hip performers don't have to go to Europe to study, that they could stay here, stay in, in America for, for at least one summer and get the kind of training experience that they were getting overseas. I don't know if we've quite lived up to that, but it certainly has taken on its own, its own approach, its own, its own um, uh, narrative. And I'm really proud of what we've accomplished with it. It's, it's an amazing program. And even after the pandemic, we still were able to get a great group of uh, performers together this summer. And uh, I, I look forward to seeing what, what uh, we come up with in the, in the years to come. It's it's really a, um, a special part of, of my job. And then the last program we added was an organ institute. Um, it, it makes sense theoretically because Bach was the ultimate organist. But uh, we also were fortunate that we had a guest the summer that we planned this. Paul Jacobs, who's an organist uh, from, uh, he's the organ professor at Juilliard. And he's also the only organist to have won uh, a Grammy for his for one of his recordings, uh, and he's just a spectacular person. I'm so lucky to get to work with him, and we bring in uh, six organists from around the world who come in and work with him for a week and do master classes, tour local instruments, and then per perform a recital as part of the festival. So, uh, it if you want to know one of the best things about my job is just how varied it is with the high school youth and the the um, the historical performance of the organ the conducting class is on uh, is on hold for the moment because we're in the middle of a, a artistic director search and uh, it, it was it was such a big part of what helmet Rilling used to do and we don't want to say okay you new person coming in you have to be helmet really if you want to come in and start a conducting class great so forth but uh, and then with all that, beyond all that, I'm also now the director of a chamber music series that runs during the school year. So I'm, I get the, the fun of a budget and I get to pick which groups come to town. And uh, some and it's one of those type of series like chamber music of Houston or chamber music of San Antonio, where where you bring in groups like uh, Miro, Ben, um, uh, 
the uh, the for a piano quartets coming this fall. We've got uh, the Escher string quartet groups like that. But so it's that's been a a fun outlet also because who doesn't want to program their own chamber music series? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those things where you say, "Oh, I can do it," and then you actually get down to the nitty gritty and talking to agents and looking through um, proposals. And that's that's what I get to do. All right. Yeah. Right. Of course, I get to do it at a time when audiences are still a little hesitant to come back to the concert hall, but I'm hoping this fall that that will have alleviated itself and we'll be getting back to our normal-sized crowds. Yeah, that'd be great. That would be great. Now, I want to ask you the question I always ask about uh, your thoughts on motivating people to uh, to practice, for example, helping them along those lines. But I think I first want to set the stage a little bit by how, uh, I mean, I think <laughs> there are some people whose approach to, to music, to art, to life is intrinsically more aesthetic, more art-based than others. And uh, since ever since having met you, you have not had to, as far as I can tell, had to kind of get yourself to think about something that could be interpreted artistically as artistically or to react to it uh, as art. Um, and that's true not just for cello music, but for music in general and, and other arts. Is that something that you think has, insofar as it's true, I mean, of course, correct me uh, at your perspective, if it, if it seems different to you, but has, is that something that has been the case all through your life or that you have proactively drawn your attention to or, or something else? It's interesting. I had to think about this a lot when I was teaching in San Antonio when I had my private studio, because the the whole question of how do you motivate a student to practice? And so the first thing you do is, well, look inside. What did I do when I was a student? But I do remember as a kid, I, we've, we've talked about in the past that I was brought up around the music of Gilbert and Sullivan. But <clears throat> to be tr- to be more honest, I was only brought up around the music of HMS Pinafore because my folks had been in a production of it in like the late sixties, right before I was born. And so they had the two record set and you put it on and listen to it. And, and they had a book that had songs and the stories from the various operas in the canon. And I'm was of the mindset, wow, HMS Pinafore is pretty cool, but some of these other shows look pretty good. This one has ghosts in it. And this one has, Japanese people in it and this one has so forth and pirates look there's some pirates so from that I got interested in well what do these other works sound like and that went from just listening to Pirates of Penzance and Mikado and some of the other standard works but then later in life especially as we got towards um, late in the what we refer to the golden era of classical recording there were so many groups in England that were starting to produce the lesser known works, the ones that are just referred to in text, like Sullivan wrote this other opera with someone else. And then we found out later the name of it. And now we get to hear recordings of it. Mm -hmm. So it it just, that kind of 
well, if I like this and this is kind of associated with it, why not listen to it and hope it doesn't let me down? So I, I've always had a little bit of that. And then the other part of what inspired me as a, as a student was I just found it fun. I, I, I just found and like playing those etudes that were in the Schroeder books. And and the funny part was, of course, at that point, I had no idea what a hodgepodge the Schroeder books were. Mm-hmm. Now that you can actually download all of the Dots Hour and Lily and all that, those in the opuses that they're from, you can say, oh, no, these aren't as random as they appear in those books. But what I loved about them was playing music for solo cello, even if they're etudes, even if they're dull etudes, that it got across some of the ideas of of seventh chords and and romantic harmonies and without realizing what I was listening to. But it just, I was developing an ear for that through those. And I found it fun. I found it kind of, and some of them just had these great moments where they were really borderline, beautiful, romantic works. And that kept me going. And I love to practice stuff on my own and find, find etudes that had interesting patterns and challenges to it. So I would my practice was usually built around what I had to do for my assignments, my schoolwork, for for my private lessons, which were all important to me. But I also built in a lot of time for just fun exploration. And then the other part of it was my mom played piano, so we would have on some Friday nights we would do cello piano nights, and that I didn't realize how important that was until I got to college, and that went away. In fact, that even would start going away even a little before that, because once you start playing pieces like the Sanson Cello Concerto, that's not something that mom can just pick up, and especially after a couple of glasses of wine and play these ridiculously tough piano transcriptions, which uh, so it, it kind of lost its its magic towards the end. Though in in the in her the last years of her life, when she'd be over here at the house, there would still be there'd be a couple of times I'd proper up on the piano, pull out some of the easier things, like some some Baroque stuff that, that weren't just challenging. And and it just meant the world to both of us because it was a memory of how much fun it was. So how do you as a teacher create that sense of fun? And I think the answer is not something that's going to come from within. It's going to come from the student. What What do they find fun? What gets them interested? And how do you... How do you figure that out? And I'm thinking that with something like IMSLP today, where you've got access to the entire world of of public domain music so that you don't have to say, well, try this $20 book. And if you don't like it, sorry, but try another $20 book. Instead, it's download this stuff, give it a try and tell me which of these titles gets do you find interesting? And I, I had an, a lot of students who were pretty shy and quiet. So it was hard to get them to talk about it. And for some, it may not be classical music in the way that, that we would, um, that, that you want to focus on necessarily. But if they want to do, if they get excited by say mm-hmm. video game music, well, how do you, how do you use that? How do you, and so maybe have them play the melodies by ear. Um, I mean, this all goes back to Phyllis Young and her entire theory of games and fun and making. So it all goes back to that. 
but challenging them to make it relevant to cello so that they understand that, oh, that's that's what I'm challenging you to do. Okay, you like the music from this game? Great. Next week, play that theme for me. And then in the meantime, I'm frantically trying to figure out what that theme is. <laughs> I don't know if they play it right or if it's making something up. But uh, that, yeah, I think that's probably the, the main thing, just how to, how to recreate that sense of fun that, that was so important to keep me going. Because uh, I certainly didn't enjoy just practicing all state and all region excerpts. And I did enjoy the concertos, but there had to be something more to it. All right, I've got to follow up on this a little bit more, though. All right. There's another thing that sometimes happens is that students will give something a try once and they'll go, nope, I don't like it. You know, and you you know what you like and what you don't like. But I've also seen you, if, if you encounter a review of something or... Uh, somebody says, oh, I really like this, and you engage in the conversation with them and find out why, you're willing to give it a fresh look, too. You know what I mean? You will you will reassess it. And I don't know that that necessarily comes automatically for youngsters. Do you ever address that sort of, well, maybe either listen to another recording or listen to it with this context in mind, learn a little bit about the historical uh, background of it, things like that? I, what it makes me think of is like my conversations with my 11 year old daughter where there the and she's wonderful so before i before i trash her here in front of this audience <laughs> but if she's like picky about a certain food but she likes this other food and I want her to try this food. I think it's this whole debate about what logic can I use to at least get her to put the food in her mouth. <laughs> and she may still just be contrary, say, Oh, I hate it. Even though she'll like it from another brand. So I, I think it's just a matter of, I'm a, well, I'm a big supporter of challenging kids when they state opinions, just make them, make them, don't don't just accept. Oh, I didn't like it. Well, what didn't you like about it? Mm -hmm. Really make them spell out what it is, and and that and that's probably one of the best things as a teacher we can do is get them thinking about art at a deeper level. That it's not just oh, I listened to Beethoven five. That's kind of cool. No, no, no. It's Beethoven five, and it's awesome because of this incredible power and the theme that you've heard your whole life. It's in commercials and movies, and yet. When you sit there and listen to it the first time, especially if you're in an orchestra and you're on stage and you're surrounded by the instruments and the power that you feel on that time, that's really something. So getting kids to, to, to talk critically about their feelings, I think is probably one, as important as a role for the teacher as showing them how to properly play their instruments because we want them to we want them to develop their own thoughts and ideas and and artistry so i think the idea of getting them thinking about it um and so in this case if a kid walks in and says yeah i didn't like didn't like this piece so i didn't practice it 
Challenge them. Challenge them. I, I, one of my favorite things about teaching is that you can get away with saying very strong things to them as long as they understand that you don't mean it personally, that you're not judging them as a person. You're, you're just challenging them to do better. And that as long as they feel like I feel like I can say to a child who plays for me, that note isn't right. And I know why it's not right. And I think you know why it's not right. Then let's talk about it. That that get that by being able to do that kind of conversation and logic, uh, even children with different ways of looking at the world will still buy into it and 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 fall for the trap. <laughs> I, I, really, I it's it, it i i've always get excited when i see evidence that oh yeah that still works and and you you still have to watch yourself you can't say that was dreadful what is wrong with you no obviously don't say that but you can be critical and say we're going to work together to make this better so they understand that they're not in this alone that you're with them but you're also tough my my friend uh lisa who I think you met once or twice that's down in Houston. She's, she's become a master at that. She, her students know she's tough as nails and they know she can get angry. And man, I've seen her angry. Sorry, Lisa. But I, I, I just love the way her kids are just addicted to her because they know she's on their side. And that's that that's the part of the psychology of teaching that, that uh, I think all plays in this whole thing about creating a fun space, creating a, a creative space, and getting them realizing how how our imaginations aren't just something that we it's not just for fun. It's something that we can really use in our daily lives, and that it's one of the best things about being thinking people. That's so true. Once that imagination is not only unleashed, but tied to what they do when they get that yeah. out of the case. Exactly. Yeah. Which is why I think it's great. I mean, for my, myself these days, what gets me going is the opportunity to play with others. And that's one of the worst things about the pandemic was mm-hmm. you didn't. And I, I watched my, my daughter start violin I had a suspicion she was doing it more to please the old man than to please herself, which proved to be the case. But her first year was online, it was on Zoom. And as as lovely as this conversation is, I wouldn't want to have a violin or a cello lesson through this this medium. And I'm, and it when when everything was done and she was able to get back into a room with other people, the magic was gone. And so she ended up quitting. But she's singing now and she's absolutely loving it. So that's there you go. That's it. So I don't feel like it was wasted time. Yeah. And she's found something that she loves so much more. Excellent. Okay. Well, Dave, what are some of the things coming down the pike? Uh, what are some things you're, uh, besides getting back to normal, excited about in uh, the fall of 22 or, or next spring? Well, I, I have been taking accounting classes. I know. I know, I because when when the whole classical world got shut down in the spring of 2020, I realized it might be good to have a plan B. <laughs> and uh, 
I, I mean, when you hear of like some of the big stars of of the Glasgow field were having to apply for food stamps, it, it just like, oh man, that, that as much as I feel like art has its place in our society, it didn't have a place in in a world where the economy was shut down. So I felt like it was important uh, if something like this comes up again, or if I burn out, um, jobs like mine aren't widespread. So if, if I need to move at some point and I can't find something like what I'm doing, accounting is certainly more, more spread out. Um, I, I need to stay gainfully employed for at least 17, 18 more years. And I figure that that's certainly something that will help me stay mentally active and financially supportive <laughs> for the family. So I'm, I'm pursuing that right now online through, um, Southern Oregon University. And uh, I, we haven't talked about uh, recorders, but I'm, I'm the conductor of the Eugene Recorder Orchestra, which, I mean, I, I, I think, I don't know if we had talked much about the recorder business, but about 20 years ago when I was in Dallas, a friend of mine talked about playing recorder and he would go to the, the, uh, the big recorder festival, which they call the the Texas toot and he was always, always excited about the toot. And I, I, my dad had played recorder when I was a kid and I, I have a memory of this, that he would, they had them in the closet with a bunch of duet books. And if he came across someone at work who said, Oh yeah, I used to play recorder. They'd invariably be invited over for dinner. <laughs> and then mom would go hide in the closet with their hands over her ears while they would play recorder duets. So I, through this friend, I got, I got an alto recorder and we set up and did some ensemble stuff. Um, then when I moved to San Antonio, I started hanging out with the local group, which they were, they were, they were about my level of playing. Then I get here to Eugene, Oregon. And there's like, there are a lot of people who play recorder out here. In fact, a lot more people play recorder and early music in this area than play modern instruments and community orchestras. So I've, I've kind of lost my community orchestra um, outreach that I used to do in San Antonio. But here I've got this bizarre new world with a lot of music that, that, don't, that doesn't pop up much in our world of modern cello. Um, I think you'll be impressed by this. I think at this point, if you were to drop the needle on a piece, just a random piece by Talis, Bird, or Gibbons, I could probably tell you which composer it is. And that wouldn't have been true 10 years ago. But that it's that I'm to the point where I can actually hear the nuance, the difference between the different composers. So it's that's that's kind of a thrill to me that in my uh, in this other music outlet, I've I found something that's that's uh, certainly more interesting than the Grout textbook ever was about this period of music. And uh, so, yeah, that, that's that's a very exciting part in that we've been getting we're now performing again. Uh, we would we would rehearse in somebody's backyard, which was fine during the dry season. But once the rainy season started, 
that that didn't help. But now we're we're back indoors, and uh, in fact, we're going to be playing a concert in a few weeks with uh, a, a sonatina by Mozart. It's the Ave Maria by Verdi, arranged for recorders, which is actually works a lot better than you might think. No, I bet. I'd like and then the uh, the prelude to the Well Tempered Kavir B minor, uh, book one. That I've also had them before the pandemic. I hadn't played the prelude and the fugue too, but that's that's brutal. <laughs> the prelude is smack. That's just wonderful. So so yeah, I'm really excited about. I I, I loved conducting. I don't know if you remember that in San Antonio, I had a a, a uh, string ensemble through the Tuesday Musical Club that met weekly, and and they were. And I just loved that. That was that was so much fun. And I still miss it to this day, even though it's 14 years later. But the recorders, with a lot of caveats, have been a great replacement for it. I mean, it's a tough instrument to 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 um, program because they've got such limited ranges. Mm -hmm. So you can't just throw anything in front of them. But I've got a I've got a group of incredible players and they they handle a lot of challenges that uh i i continue am amazed and delighted with with what they can do so that that's between that and and the chamber music series with all the 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 names i have coming i like barry douglas i had this opening i had this hole in there i was like trying to figure out and i thought let's do a piano recital and i'm looking at the who all's on the sheets and i remember barry douglas from the 90s because he won the, um, he was third place in the Van Cliburn competition. And then he went and won the Tchaikovsky a year later. And uh, he's a, a great romantic pianist. And I've talked to his agent. He was available. He's coming to Eugene. And I, I, that's fun. That's a lot of fun. To, and and it's not something that I prepared for. It's not like I got a, a, a doctorate in in um i guess musicology or or whatever i don't know what field you would need what you would pursue to do this kind of programming but i just i think i've proved myself through the years at obf of what my tastes are what how things come together and i have people that I bounce the the ideas off of to make sure that i'm not going out of my mind <laughs> but um but it is fun it is a lot of fun. And and I think that's kind of how I ended. I mean, I just haven't studied enough historical performance to say I'm an authority on it, but I do have enough experience that I can organize this this academy and then bring in the bring in the 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 big guns, the the, the people who really know it, and they shape the curriculum and they shape what happens, but but through the conversation. And so yeah, that that's what that's what's been checking my musical boxes lately that and i've gotten into jazz so go wow. figure yeah there you go I, I i was i needed something new so jazz was the is the uh the current the current discovery wow does jazz go well with accounting <laughs> isn't that how the the jazz uh conductors they they count off they do accounting a one and a two. <laughs> no, 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 no. 
you come for the cello information, you stay for the dad jokes. It's that's <laughs> well, and best of luck then with the new artistic director. That'll be that'll be a fun new dimension as well. I'm sure it it should be. Um, you know, I wish I could say more. We we have a big press release next week that okay. maybe. In fact, by the time people see this, it probably will be out if they were so so moved to look it up. But um, yeah, you know, it's funny. The arts you don't escape the politics of humans against humans. It they just it's I I. Um, I I still marvel that there is that we can be in this field that brings such happiness and joy to ourselves, and yet we can become so miserable dealing with other people, and we make ourselves crazy sometimes by by digging into it, and and, and other people drive us crazy. Um, well, I'm very glad we have the arts to go to. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Recharge. That's right. Because yeah. Yeah. no, but you're right. You're absolutely right. And on that note, <laughs> maybe that could be the, the send-off for a weekend of practicing. Happy practicing out there, everybody. And thanks so much to you, Dave, for being on the program. Thank you for letting me come on and, and blather for 30 minutes. <laughs> All right. Take care, everybody, and we'll see you this time next Friday.